Hello, I'm Laura Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's community cookbook shop. Book Larder has been around for eight years now, and if there's one book category that has absolutely exploded in that time, it's cocktail books. You can find a book to fit just about any need you might have behind the bar, whether it's copying drinks from your favorite spot or learning all you can about whiskey. A lot of ground has been covered in this subject in the past few years. So when you've already written two of the most influential books in the category, what do you do next? Today's author, Brad Thomas Parsons, looked to one of the best parts of bar culture for inspiration, the stories bartenders tell. With his latest book, Last Call, Brad explores that twilight time, when the bar winds down, but the bartender's evening begins. He also asks about the ultimate last call. What would your last drink on earth be? Brad is the author of the award-winning books Bitters and Amaro and has been a friend of Booklarder since our beginning eight years ago. He discussed the many interpretations of the phrase last call with drinks writer Paul Clark in the Booklarder Kitchen in October 2019. Here's Brad Thomas Parsons and Last Call. Welcome back to Seattle, man. Thank you. Good to be back. <laughs> I wanted to kind of start this off because, you know, when I first got the advanced copy of this book a few months ago, and I was looking it over and then looking at the, the finished copy. You know, if you go into a fine bookstore like this and you peruse the shelves of the drinks books, the cocktail books, everything is looking at things like uh, entertaining or parties, you know, kind of celebratory things, or it's going to be like a deep dive into mezcal or gin or something of that nature. Exactly. Your book, take a little bit different look. You're looking at bars, and but also really through the lens of mortality. So I guess the yes. first question is, what the hell, man? <laughs> well, I, I turned 50. And so it was in, uh, I know I look 35, but I, uh, yeah, you know, like I, Bitters came out in 2011. It was published the same day as the PDT book. And Jim and I are good friends. We had a gentlemanly rivalry with that. But the shelf is a lot more saturated now. Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, every topic has been explored. After Bitters and Amaro and my passion project distillery cats, you know, it was kind of uh, the single subject. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, what's next? Is it vermouth? Is it aquavie? And these are all passion projects and things that are, I could be obsessive about and spend a lot of time with. And I really didn't know what was next. I took a long time between Bitters and Amaro because Bitters kept me busy promoting it. And it was like five years, I think. And then I wanted to try to get something out in the next couple of years. And this literally started with those two words, last call, mm-hmm. together, like in an email draft. I never talked to my publisher. I only tell my agent the idea before I tell anyone else, sometimes my editor, but I was out with my publisher at Dante having Negronis and I gave him the elevator pitch, which is, you know, can always be risky because it's your one shot mm-hmm. sort of thing. And he was like, let's do it. And we took out like a, a bar napkin. We're sketching photo, recipe, story, boom. So as an author... We'll talk more about the making of the book, but you have a point where you turn in what's called progress materials, you know, where they want to make sure, even this is my fourth book, that things are on board. And this was the first time nothing good. <laughs> it was like it was like one of those, not even like, hey, Brad, is really good, but it was just like boom, boom, boom. And the issue was, you know, I was going more philosophical, more existential, and they were like, where are the recipes? We need, you know, it was beers and shots and neat spirits. And like the sales team would be very frustrated. So I righted the ship. You know, I went back, re-interviewed a lot of people. 
So I had to really paint it as the hook for sales is, you know, death row drink, final mm-hmm. drink. But for me, last call was open to interpretation. It was, is it your shift drink? Because your last drink, the drink you're best known for. In the introduction I talk about, is it a drink you want to have with a loved one who's no longer here? I mean, we did get to that. Yeah, it turned out to be like, there's fun parts, there's drunken nights, but there's a lot of mournfulness. We're talking to bartenders from 23 to 70. And, you know, there's a lot going on in the bartending world right now and wellness and taking care of yourself and harassment on both sides of the bar. And so this question just provoked a lot of things beyond gin and tonic. You would start talking and then it got into, or a martini, for example, or, you know, that was the, the same spec the father taught the son how to make or things like that. So, so I kind of sat back and I didn't steer the jury anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, it sort of happened that way. And I think but maybe my own you know, getting older and knowing that too long for this earth, kind of trying to, uh, and also being, I'm not a bartender, so embedding myself with these bartenders. It took a toll on Ed, my photographer, and myself, like shooting this book at, over last year, traveling all around the country. He's 50 as well. And so like we, one, we did 12 cities in 12 days once and multiple bars each city. And it was exhausting. We say it almost killed us. And, you know, it probably, it probably you know, Ed always said, like, Danny Glover, you know, I'm getting too old for this shit. <laughs> so, like, uh, this is a younger man's book. But um, so, yeah, so it took, a, it took an emotional, right. mental, physical toll on us to write it. And I think, but ultimately, it's a love letter to these bartenders. And some are older, some have wisdom to share. And I was just trying to share that. Well, at, at the same time, I mean, you wound up some with some really poignant information coming out, you know, for, from your own family, from bartenders and their family sharing stories, like you said, you know, things that they learned from their parents, things that mm-hmm. they remember from from people in their family and from close friends that are, that are no longer here. Going into this, going to the research and doing those kinds of interviews, I mean, typically in the past, you'd be talking about tomorrow and how do you do this, you know, yeah. what, what's a cool recipe with this? What was it like to have those kinds of conversations? You know, how did the bartenders respond? I like that question. It, it's... You know, because bitters and tomorrow, I have to be authoritative. You know, like I, you're well-researched, talk to authority, uh, producers and masters of all this stuff. And then I'm distilling that information for people who may not know a lot about it. But you get a lot of people who, I know this, he didn't do this, he should have done that. So this book to me was a, a clean slate. No one can say he has the wrong question or something. So these interviews started off, it was important to visit every one of these bars. We did a lot of pre-interviews. I had sort of a questionnaire that was the model that I used, but as you see in the book, it's not. You know, some are narrative, some are questions. Everyone gets asked, you know, what is the last drink you? But leading up to that, there's different ways. And originally it was much more biographical and we cut a lot of that. Some people were more receptive than others. Some people, I mean, we showed up at some bars and they forgot we were coming you know, yeah. or something and, <laughs> and, uh, and we had to come back later. Um, but for the most part, I found like the, whether we started with phone calls or emails, but being there in person, we normally come into the city, we'd interview them during the day or the morning before service. And, and I talked about this in the book a little bit, like a bar is like a stage set. And when you're there, when the house lights are, are on and you see fruit flies and the music's not playing and it's a little sticky versus at night when you have the ambient lighting and the cool music and the sexy people and the fun people. And that's where like last call, I talked about the beginning is like when those lights come up at the end, that's a reality check. So we would come back at night and continue to watch them and hang out with them. But I think like we like Ezra Starr in the book from Boston, she had worked till I think 5 a.m. that night and we interviewed her at 8 a.m. like in Boston <laughs> on our way to Portland, Maine. Some are shorter than others you may see in the book and those were people, it was usually younger, right. younger people, 
23-year-old bartenders don't care about mortality for the most part, you know, and so I had to like do a little more digging. So it's sort of like, why did you pick this? What does it mean to you? But there's a lot of wisdom out there. And so it's just getting those answers. And no one, there were things we didn't put in the book that may have been too personal. But for, you know, a lot of people, I remember talking to Laura Kelton in um, Chicago, a sportsman's club, and she had just found out a very famous bartender had cancer diagnosis, like before the interview. And then that got her talking about a regular at her bar who had um, killed himself, you know, a month before. And that kind of emotional front line you're dealing with. Ezra, too, that woman I just talked about, she had been to four funerals for bartenders in a month before that or something. So there was a lot of stuff to talk about. It wasn't like quite therapy, you know, because like Ed's clicking away while I'm talking to them um, when are taking their portrait. But, but I found for the most part, people were open. Some were fast, we were in and out. Mm-hmm. Others, we wanted to stay all night with them. And, uh, and I think that shows. The ones, some of them I embed myself in where I am part of the story. Those, I think you can really feel that, that late night action. Mm-hmm. Speaking of late night action, as yeah. you mentioned, last call, <laughs> you've got two sides to that. Uh, you mentioned you know, like early on during the day before, before opening hours, the, the bar is like a stage. The lights are on, you know, they're, everybody's getting set up, and that's, you know, compare that to, to the energy at night. Mm-hmm. But at 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. or midnight or depending on the bar, that shifts again. Yeah. Let's let's just talk about that experience a little bit and what kind of led you down that path where you saw like all of these kinds of different directions that you could follow. The genesis for the book after like those two words last call was I was at one of my local bars in Brooklyn. I was out with friends having a great dinner. Everyone was coupled up except for me. We wound up back at the bar. They all go home their own ways in Ubers and I'm kind of feeling a little sorry for myself, talking to the bartender. I say, you know, I should let you close up. And he's like, Brad, we closed two hours ago. And so I was like, <laughs> still there. And then it was like, then I noticed like, wow, you know, the lights are up. They're playing sad Tom Waits music and instead of Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin. You know, we're the only two people there. The door is locked. And that was like, wow, I haven't had this since college. Or something you know, like that kind of where, you know, you're out there listening to Semisonic's closing time sort of thing. This was a maudlin reality check. So... For the book, you know, there was a little what we call in, mo- in the call in movies, you know, shooting day for night, where like the portraits were shot during the day mm-hmm. because we couldn't bring in lamps and things. And Ed, the photographer, does a great job of you don't know that. Hopefully, for the most part, doing like like Kimball House and St. Leo Lounge in Oxford, you know, we were out till four or five a.m. with them, and 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 so a lot of it was like the writers are in town. Let's show him mm-hmm. what we do for fun, and it killed us. And then other times it was more <laughs> just like that slow. Toby Cicchini, who owns Long Island Bar in New York, he talks about the Hemingway story, Clean Well at a Place, where the, the old bartender wants to stay and the young bartenders are like, we're out of here. And his staff is like that. Like, he may be open till two, but if no one's at the bar, they lock the doors and go. And then other bars, like Montero Bar is a dive bar in my neighborhood that caters, used to cater to longshoremen. And like this morning, when I took the Uber to JFK super early in the morning, the lights were still on in there. <laughs> like, things are going on. <laughs> Yeah, so I think it's like, for the bartenders especially, it's a period of transition. You know, they've been on all night, giving themselves, listening, receiving insults, compliments, all sorts of things in service, literally. And then it stops. It's their moment. A lot of them had routines, whether it's about the way they count the money. There were shift drinks. People have shift drinks after their shifts. Maybe they're eating, or but some of them are going to the next bar to chase another last call. Others, I found more, were going home. Um, there was a lot more of the going home to walk their dog or taking a walk. But there was enough, there was partying elements, but the whole mood of, like we said earlier, of the stage changing its point of view. Damon Bolte, a Brooklyn bartender, talks about that period a lot. It is like a, it's like a reverse twilight, you know, it's sort mm-hmm. of um, post-midnight twilight where 
you think about it, they're going getting home at 4 or 5 a.m. sometimes, and it's a vampire kind of lifestyle. The one question I ask most of everyone in the book is, you, you're so wired, you're on all night from adrenaline, how do you decompress? One guy in Philadelphia has all the DVRs, all the Phillies game, and watches them at like double the speed and watches the whole season that way. <laughs> um, Paul McDonald, another Philly bartender, he, he lives like an hour away from the bar and he walks home every night. That's his thing, you know, in the middle of the night with a big wad of cash in his pocket, you know, no <laughs> headphones. But, um, and then he has to be super quiet because he has two kids sleeping upstairs. I mean, others are like, like Aaron Polsky in LA. You know, he's going to have, he's having breakfast, you know, in, in the middle of the night and, and meeting friends at another bar, having people over. There's a lot of video games. A lot of mm-hmm. bartenders like play video games when they get home. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, so, not, so everyone was different. But mm-hmm. for the most part, one thing, I, like when I talked to um, a bar here in Seattle, when I was asking these questions, they were like, and even this was a bartender who a year before I'd been there and it was, it had been night and day. Like this person wasn't drinking as much. They looked healthier. And he was just sort of like, I know what you're going after. Like we don't, people aren't hanging out having dim sum all night in the middle of the night anymore. Like for the most part, it's a young person's mm-hmm. game. So the more wiser people aren't going crazy and partying. Mm-hmm. But um, but it was really nice to, like I said, embed ourselves and be privy to that and have witness mm-hmm. that special moment happen and and close down bars and see the lights go off and right. locking the doors. Right. Let's talk about tradition for a minute, because yeah. you, you mentioned how a lot of bars have something that they do at last call. Yeah, I'd heard of a couple, like, when I put together this list of bars, I did a lot of crowdsourcing online, not social media. I had this giant, like, Google Sheets of bars and kept getting more recommended. And I wanted to have some that had signature moves, so to speak. And and there's a bar in Decatur, Georgia, called Kimball House. Uh, it's in a former train station, and they have, like, a giant wall of liquor with a ladder and at the end of the night, whether the customers know what's going on or not, someone scampers up the ladder and they pull down this little xylophone they got at a flea market and it has the lyrics and they play out and the whole staff sings that um, Looney Tunes number, How Dry I Am, you know, How Dry I Am. <laughs> and, 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 and some people join along, some people don't. And so like when I was actually, I was interviewing those guys. We were out in the pet because Miles McQuarrie, was, uh, who runs the show there, was a hard guy to track down. So we were literally out there, and the staff was like, come on, it's 2 a.m., it's 2 a.m. So we were out in the patio on a summer night interviewing him. Um, that one was a lot of fun. You said bells, like a Polizzi social club in Philly. They play my way, and they ring a big bell and get them out of there. Uh, Lost Lake in Chicago is a famous tiki bar, and they had a conch shell, but there was only one person who had to blow it properly, and so <laughs> so that person left, and so now it just sits there. And, and that's why it's a 24-hour bar. <laughs> yeah, and Paul, McG- <laughs> Paul, McG- Paul McGee was like, I should learn how to do that. And another tiki bar, Smuggler's Cove in San Francisco, has this Swiss Family Robinson contraption of a bell up in rafters and ropes, and like they pull it, it's like a big church bell, kind of rings the bell. And a lot of it was music, you know, like so certain songs are played. Uh, like I found like uh, Prince, Purple Rain is a big one. You hear a lot of Prince, a lot of Queen, Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, some have a suite of songs they'll play, a progression of that the goes, and it's a bar in New York where it's like once the Sade comes on, <laughs> that closes down. So it wasn't just because when you Google like bar songs, it's all the one shot, one whiskey, one beer and all that stuff. And it was really interesting to see like like when you hear like Roberta's Pizzeria in Brooklyn, uh, when you hear, and I know we can't really play his music much anymore, but when you hear Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror, <laughs> the show's over. So that's kind of their their way to do it. So so not everyone had a ritual, but but the ones that did really cherished it and they looked forward to it and mm-hmm. it was their thing. And so to kind of witness that was a lot of fun. And um, 
And that was a, the, the tricky part of this book is, you know, we were literally in and out and in and out. And you just wanted to spend weeks with some of these people right. or, or days. And, uh, and you kept getting shuffled to the next bar. You got to go to this place or that place. Yeah. So I think, I think there was a lot of bells, um, songs. And, uh, but I think the xylophone was my mm. favorite okay. uh, of, yeah. of those, you know, because I'd heard about, because like, everyone's like, you got to go to Kimball House, the xylophone, but you have to be there at like 2 or 30 a.m. to see it happen. And, and it was pretty fun. Yeah. And, and like, there's one, another interesting one, Sportsman's Club, which is a uh, bar in Chicago. The bartender shushes everyone. So it's like, like, like um, you know, so you're talking, you're having fun, and suddenly you hear someone shh, it gets louder and louder. And you're like, what? Is, then she wants your full attention. And then she says, like, Now's the time to settle your bill, call your Uber, you know, um, tip us out. And then, you know, in, in Ezra Starr, again, in Boston, they had rituals behind the scenes where the staff lines up like a brigade and do Cesarac shots or something, you know. So it's, it was interesting to see, like, right. the things you wouldn't know that are happening behind the scenes. Or um, it's not always in front of the customer. It's like, you know, going down, whether it's like pounding their, their food or bringing a certain meal. Another fun one um, in Philadelphia, there's a bar called Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's a restaurant bar. We were there for last call. And, and one thing about like talking about how this book almost killed us was like our health. Like we ate a lot of poor food on the road. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like we would have, you know, here in Seattle at Canlis, you know, um, it was pretty special because like we rolled in, in our dungarees and shirts and, and James McWilliams was like, you guys have to come back at night and see what we really do here. And we ended up having like this four course dinner at the bar. And then the next night we were literally in a Wendy's drive through at midnight, you know, eating, <laughs> eating chili. So we're in Philadelphia. Ed's got the gout. So he, uh, it, it, it comes and goes, but this, this book tour, or this, this research tour really spiked us in. And so we were at one bar. They were sending out every like gout food that there right. was that he, they didn't know, but that they caused it like a bone marrow and this and that. Right. We had like two full meals that night. And then we went to this other, this bar Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And they said, the chef wants to see you in the kitchen. And we thought we were in trouble. And every Sunday night, the kitchen has their version of Last Call, where they bring in, it's either Chinese or cheesesteaks. So we were there for cheesesteak night. So Ed was like, are you killing me? So we had to like, we, it's in the book, but like there's cheesesteaks and waffle fries and peppers everywhere. And everyone's chowing down. And then, and then we like went out after that for more and more. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's fun yeah. to see like the interaction of, there's a little crossover of a restaurant has a kitchen too, like what the chefs are doing. Let's talk about the drinks themselves that you have in this book. Honestly, how much of an effort was it to keep everybody from just saying a beer and a shot? Because knowing well, how much yeah. drink, that's what they're That was that in. note yeah. I got from my publisher, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, no. no, like I think it was- We can an, run exactly one of these. I think it's when we had a picture of Gary Crunkleton, this larger-than-life bartender who's a dear friend of mine in Chapel Hill, and he's at a pool table with a Miller High Life, and he's like- <laughs> There's no recipe for Miller High Life. And so it was a balance because there are, you know, there's multiple martinis. Um, the one we're drinking is a nod to Anu Apte Elford, the owner of Rob Roy downtown. Hers is a 50-50 martini with all the garnishes. We have a three to one. Um, we have different specs. So there's, um, there's a couple of Manhattans, different specs. So I did have to be aware of like, all right, we already have X number of this or that. It can't be a you know, so I, I was aware of that. I did at a certain point early on, I was letting it was free reign. And then I did sort of ask for a drink, mm -hmm. like a, whether it's a mixed drink or a cocktail. Um, and so no one was faking it. They'd be like, oh, if I had to choose. But a lot of, you know, the reality is most would want just a cold beer. Yeah. The, the consensus was you're not going to see many shaken drinks. You know, the, the ice, the burning, the, the ice is burnt at that point. The ice, like hot water, starting the ice, it's melted. Um, Plus, make, plus, you've been doing that all night long. You know, exactly. The last thing you want to do is... Yeah, yeah you want something that's, that's going to quench your thirst mm -hmm. and be cold. 
and or something you can sip and kind of savor and help you transition that mood. But for the most part, you're not getting daiquiris. And if you are, it's more like Chris Elford, whose husband is has a Sazerac with a daiquiri back, you know, which is kind of funny. So um, two for there were a lot of two for one drinks in there. Yeah. So so yeah, so it was because the drink it is. To me, like these drinks don't have head notes. Like normally in my books, there's like 500 words introducing each drink. These, the drink is almost like an afterthought to, not afterthought, but it's, you have this great story and then here's a recipe mm-hmm. if you want to go make it. There's one super complicated one from DC that has like sub, five sub recipes and, right. I, and, and I, that was his favorite drink. Yeah. The drink he was most proud of, the drink he makes. And mm-hmm. so we let it in there. But for the most part, Either riffs on classics mm-hmm. or like a mezcal Negroni instead of a Negroni, Martinis, Manhattan, Sazerac, and some, ori- some original drinks. Mm-hmm. And we also, to add some more recipes, um, if a bartender was famous for a drink, we often included that. I was genuinely surprised by how many uh, martini recipes yeah. I saw. But also yeah. I can, like, you know, if this, is, if this is your last drink, man, you want something perfect. Exactly. Martini is, is going to be as close as you can get to that sometimes. You mentioned early on that you started your career here in Seattle, um, yeah. and you and you have several Seattle establishments included in the place. Mm-hmm. How does Last Call and Closing Time differ from, let's say, Canless versus Rob Roy or Dino's oh. or you <laughs> Very know? Very different. <laughs> So, yes, I lived in Seattle from 99 to 2010, and my first byline was at the Seattle Met Magazine, and I wanted to write about food, and and this was like 2008, and they're like, we wanted someone to help with cocktails, and that sort of helped that. And one of the first stories they did was on bitters, which led to that. So, so yeah, so for Seattle, like, Palace Kitchen is one of my favorite places, but to me, it was, some places were about the bar, some people were about the people, and, like, you would think, like, why aren't you at Cannon or why aren't you here? So it's hard to pick what. And I just knew, like, I had a lot of fun whenever I go to New Luck Toy over in West Seattle. Like, it's a trek to get over there, but it's fun food, a good time. Canlis was, like, that was a wild card for me. I didn't think they'd even let us in the door and uh, went through all PR people. And so I got to James McWilliams, who runs the bar there. The question I asked James at Canlis, I'm like, when is last call? He's like, whenever the last person leaves, you know, and... And there's no time. Like, not talking like legalities here, but if someone's still in the dining room at, after 2 a.m., they're still open, so mm-hmm. to speak. Well, yeah, like Rob Roy, to me, that's my fun, sexy, cool downtown bar vibe. And I always love going there. That's a very different scene where you're going to have more shots and more, you know, canless is more rarefied, obviously. But, yeah, so I think we have New Luck Toy, canless, and Rob Roy. You've got Dino's. Dino's, yeah, yeah. So Dino's, to me, that was like, that was more... Like, you know, it's it's a bar more than a pizzeria and or a bar that happens to serve pizza. And I kind of just got drawn into that. So picking them, they seem a little esoteric, but each of them, for me, is a lot of high-low in this book. Mm-hmm. And um, whether it's a like Musso and Frank in L.A., which is a historic landmark, 100-year-old restaurant just celebrated 100 years, that's no cameras involved, no cameras allowed. And it took us weeks and weeks and weeks to get permission. We had to come in at like 9 a.m. We had an hour and that was it. And they would not let us bring any cameras in at night. And then oddly enough, Ed, my photographer, just shot Danny Trejo's cookbook, the actor Danny Trejo. And he's a regular at Musso's and they had lamps and lights. It was no issue. I'm like, uh-huh, I know my where I stand in the Musso food chain. So yeah, I guess like it, it, it was really varied. Right, right. That's all the prepared question I have. I'll finish right. it the way I always do all interviews. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to make sure you mention? This is my most personal book. You know, I think like I give a lot away up front about myself, but then embedding myself in these stories and just hearing, being a conduit to other very interesting stories, a lot of sharing and oversharing. And so I think 
I'm very lucky that the people we found and discovered and like it's a, it's not just star tenders as we say it's like people you've never heard of hopefully places you'll say oh that sounds really cool I should check this place out whenever I'm in this city and uh, yeah so I mean I'm, I think those are all great questions and we can they have any what's your last one I get that all the time and and I can generally say like it depends on the occasion after dinner who I'm with where I'm at and there's a little bit of that well last call like what it would be if I were truly was my last drink. And ultimately I find like when I do things like this or an event, I just want a cold beer at the end of the night. And so like I kind of in a book I talk about, like I like Negronis. I like all their variations. I love old fashions, but ultimately a cold Pilsner or a cold bottled beer. And I kind of talk about, you know, my dad was a Miller Lite guy. So I kind of, that would be my sentimental answer, like a tall Miller Lite. In a dive bar. <laughs> so, curious to see one of your favorite American Maros, and maybe even more specific, one of your favorite Washington. Oh, I'm glad we have a lot more out there, but a lot of it isn't that great right now. Availability is really tough. You know, like usually, if there's a great one in Portland, you're only getting in Portland. Um, but I think of the American ones, uh, Don Chichu Fili, I think, is the biggest portfolio. Portland, Maine, they make a fernet that's aged in blueberry wine barrels. That's like a nod. To that and the, the southern amaro uses southern ingredients um a local holly and some other bittering agents i also like in brooklyn i'm a little biased but i think fourth there's a brand called fourth have spirits that's really delicious they're small batch just two guys they self-distributed they have an imperativo an amaro uh nocino and i just rolled out a coffee liqueur they are super knowledgeable and um saint agrestus uh is another brooklyn one that that's getting a lot of traction i think so a lot of it is about you have to go beyond the liquor stores where they're partnering up with literary events or any kind of hip like fashion show or talk they're the ones serving the booze there and it's like getting out there and hustle so i want to thank laura and the team for having me back this is my fifth appearance here and uh, hopefully not my last but uh thanks a lot yeah Thank you to Brad Thomas Parsons for visiting us in Seattle and to Paul Clark for leading the discussion. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of Last Call and any other books featured on Booklarder Podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. We have signed copies of Last Call and many of the other books that have been featured on the podcast, so be sure to get one of those while they last because they make excellent holiday gifts. And if you visit us in the shop, just mention that you heard about a book on the podcast for 10% off in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard here, leave us a rating and review to help others find us as well. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit booklarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us in person at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.